I just want to start off, we're going to be in, in Ecclesiastes, so we started our series in Ecclesiastes last week, and we're going to read the passage in just a moment here, but I just want to start off in prayer. Uh, I want to pray for you, and I hope that as I'm praying that uh, I want to ask that you also would pray for me, um, because um, I, I, you know, I always say this, I say this often, but there's nothing that I can do, there's nothing that I can say, there's no advice that I can give you that's going to help you, that can transform your life. It's, it's only the Word of God, and, and I can't even preach uh, this, this Word without God's help. So would you just pray that God would, would fill me with His Spirit, that He would help me in my weakness this morning? Um, and uh, I, I'm going to pray for you and, and, and pray for every one of us that God would speak to us this morning, because I believe you're here for a reason. I, I don't believe that anything happens by accident. God is sovereign over every single event. Uh, that happens in the universe, and he brought you here for a purpose this morning. Whether, you're, whether you've never been to church, whether it's been a long time since you've been to church, or whether you are a member here, no matter where you're at, God has you here for a reason, because he wants to speak to you today. So let's pray. Let's spend a moment uh, praying, okay? God, uh, I thank you so much for this morning. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you uh, for your goodness towards us. Like we sang, God, you truly are so good. It's so easy for us to focus on uh, things that are going wrong. It's so easy for us to focus on uh, the negative, on uh, things that are not going the way that we want them to. But Lord, when we just take a step back and we reflect on just how glorious you are, on just how much uh, grace you've bestowed upon us, God, uh, when we think about how holy you are and how uh, unholy we are, how short we have fallen of your righteousness, and yet despite all of that, you would love us enough to send your son Jesus to die for us and then defeat death in our stead so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God, how could we not sing, you are so good? How could we sing anything else? So God, we, we just confess that we need you this morning. There's nothing else that we need, and, and that's what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that we can search high and low under the sun, and we're not going to find anything like Jesus, anyone like Jesus. Jesus, only you can satisfy our soul. Only you are worthy of our worship. So God, would you please open eyes this morning? Show people that. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that Jesus is not their treasure, that you would, God, do a, a work of regeneration, do a miracle in their heart and show them, Jesus, just how glorious you are. Help us to see, God, the vanity of things under the sun, the vanity of living for this life here as if there's nothing else. God, please help me as I preach. Um, God, I too am a sinner in desperate need of grace every second of every day. So please, oh God, help me. Help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, Ecclesiastes is in between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Uh, if you just open up your Bible, it's just about right smack dab in the middle. Um, and the words are also going to be on the screen behind me, so if you don't have your Bible with you, you can also follow along uh, up there. So I'm going to go ahead and read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. And then we'll dive into it. So this is the word of God. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. 
And I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can, man, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already done. Then I saw that there is no gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. All right. So last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we talked about how 
the, the preacher who we're calling him, uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, it was Solomon who wrote this book. So the preacher uh, was king over Israel at some point, and he had, uh, he, had outlasted, he had outgained every other king who had come before him. He was the greatest king uh, in the entire earth. He had more riches. He had more of everything. He, even, he just ran through the laundry list of, of things he had accumulated for himself. And last week in chapter 1, we learned that the truly wise person admits that life apart from Jesus is devoid of significance and meaning. So in chapter 1, the preacher made the point that if this life is all there is, then life is truly vanity because in the end, death steals everything. And what he's doing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is he's kind of taking us on this journey to find out how to have contentment and how to have purpose and happiness in this life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what he's doing is he's laying out all the different ways that he's tried to find contentment. And they just so happen to be the ways that we also look for contentment today. And his purpose is to show us that the places that we typically look for contentment in our lives are dead ends. This passage that we just read helps us answer the question, how can I truly be satisfied and happy? And this is one of the great questions in life, isn't it? All of us want to know the answer to that question. Everyone wants to be content. Uh, the actor Jim Carrey once famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. He's right. It's not the answer. But what is? If you're a Christian and I were to ask you, how can you be content? Your answer would probably be Jesus. Just look to Jesus, right? And the answer sounds simple enough. And yet if I were to ask the room, I, I don't want you to raise your hands and I don't want you to answer, but you can just answer to yourself. But if I were to ask the entire room, how many of you are 100% content with every part of your life 100% of the time, I doubt that any hands would go up. None of us can honestly say we're always completely content with every area of our life. We struggle with discontentment all the time, don't we? Never quite satisfied with our, our waistline. We just need to lose a few more pounds. Never quite satisfied with our house. We just need a, a quiet, just a little bit quieter of a street or one more bedroom. Never quite enough salary, just one more raise, and then we'll have some, some breathing room in our budget. Never quite done with the to-do list. If I can just knock out a few more things, then I'll feel like I can relax and I can breathe. Have you ever noticed how hard it is for us to simply be still? It's getting harder and harder and harder just to be still. Psalm 46.10 is one of my favorite verses. Um, God says in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And, and, I, and oftentimes I'll hear that and I go, man, I want to do that well. <laughs> I want to do that better than I can. I, I think we all desire that, that contentment, that peace, that, uh, that lack of anxiety where we can just be still and know that he is God. But it's very difficult for us to do that, isn't it? Even when we not acknowledge and know that he's in control and he's good. All of this just tells us 
that we need to hear what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 has to teach us this morning. Because no one has it figured out as much as we think we do when it comes to contentment. See, too often we keep going back to the same cisterns that cannot hold water, and it just leads to frustration. So, in today's passage, what we're going to do is we're going to identify the dead ends on the road to to contentment that we are tempted to turn to. Then we're going to look at why we keep going back to those dead ends, and then we're going to finish up by talking about how we can truly be content. All right, so that's where we're heading. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start off the first point in your outline. The first dead end that the preacher identifies is the vanity of self-indulgence. The vanity of self-indulgence. In verse 1 he says, I, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then he begins to list all of these things, all of these, these pleasures that he indulged himself in to try to find contentment. He tried laughter and he tried partying. He, he, he tried wine, he built great homes for himself, and he had vineyards, and uh, he had servants to cater to his every whim. He didn't even have to lift, lift a finger. He, he, he had everybody uh, doing all this work for him. He had more money than he can spend. He had, he had great wealth, more wealth than everybody in the world. He had any woman he could possibly want at any time. And he summarizes it in verse 9 and 10. He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from it, no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. So he's literally telling us that there there was nothing that he didn't have the money to obtain. And there was nothing that he kept from himself. He indulged his every whim. And what's amazing when you think about these luxuries that he's listing here in this passage is that the things that he enjoyed, most of these things now we look at as basic necessities, don't we? Like, I was kind of thinking about this. The, the average person in America is way, way, way more wealthy and lives way more luxuriously than Solomon could have ever dreamed. I mean, we've got microwaves that heat food in seconds, We have planes that can make what used to be a two-month journey a four-hour journey. We've got central heat and air that that put the temperature to our exact specifications so that we can sleep comfortably. He had none of this. Like, he didn't have enough money to even buy all of these things. He would have been blown away at the luxury that that the average American lives with today. We are, think about this, we are more wealthy and more well-off than the most powerful king in the world was even like 200 years ago. Like everybody in this room, most likely, more well-off than the most powerful king in the world just a couple hundred years ago. We're healthier, we're safer, we live longer, and what do we have to show for it? Higher anxiety rates than at any other time in the history of the world rising suicide rates, greater dissatisfaction. And the preacher came to the same conclusion in verse 11. He said, I considered all that my hands had done, all this stuff that he had accumulated, and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity in a striving after wind. 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he looks at all of this stuff, everything that he's accumulated, and he says, it's nothing. I've gained nothing in the end. The reason that you never feel like you have enough is because at the end of the day, you know that you can't keep it. We know that we're going to lose all of it at some point, which is why we never feel like we have enough no matter how much we accumulate. The preacher decided that since self-indulgence doesn't work, that maybe he would try something else. So next he tried wisdom and knowledge. Dead end number two is the vanity of living wisely. The vanity of living wisely. In verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So he acknowledges uh, the virtues of wisdom. He he takes a look around and he says, yeah, it, it is better to be wise than a fool. The wise man tends to fare better than the fool. But then he takes a step back and he realizes, but at the end of the day, the wise person is going to die just like the fool is. So what's the point of it all at the end of the day? What have I actually gained? Death exposes our foolishness in thinking that we can figure out the world. No matter how proudly man may boast, death reminds everyone that you are dust, and to dust you will return. I heard a story, heard a, a, another pastor tell a story one time uh, and a man in his church uh, had passed away, and he was meeting with his widow in their office to plan the funeral. And um, they were they were in the office of the man who had passed away at at his home, and he had uh, not too long before completed his doctorate degree, and he had the doctorate degree hanging up on the wall. And she was crying, and she looked at the pastor, and she pointed up at the uh, the diploma up on the wall, and she said, he worked for eight years so hard for that. What good is it now? That's a, it's always, that story has always struck me. It's always stuck with me that at the end of the day, all the achievements, all the diplomas, all the doctors, all the wisdom that we can accumulate it's going to stay here. We're going to have to leave it behind. We can't take it with us. Even wisdom and knowledge in the end do not result in gain. So he tried something else. Next, the preacher decided to try to find contentment in his work. Dead end number three is the vanity of work and achievements. The vanity of work and achievements. Uh, There are different motivations for workaholics. Anybody know a workaholic? Don't point them out. But there are different motivations for workaholics. Some have an insatiable need to achieve more, while others have an unquenchable desire to acquire more. And Solomon uh, gives two reasons that work and achievements are vanity. Uh, in verse 18 and 19, he says that you cannot keep what you've built. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, I hated all my toil 
in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I've toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. So no matter how hard you work, you cannot take what you've worked so hard to build with you. So it could be an inheritance, it could be your reputation that you've built, it could be a project you've been working on. Whatever your life's work is, you are going to have to leave it to someone else. And who knows whether they're going to be wise or a fool. They just might squander it all away. In fact, Solomon himself, King Solomon, uh, the, the man that I'm pretty, uh, that scholars are pretty sure wrote this letter right here, this book, he built the kingdom up to its greatest heights that it had ever seen. And then do you know what happened when his son Rehoboam took over the kingdom after he died? Within a few years, the kingdom had split in half because of Rehoboam's foolish decision. And then the Assyrians came and invaded and they took out all of that treasure and all of that gold. They paraded it out of the palace and they brought it back to Assyria. And King Rehoboam was deposed. It didn't even take one generation for everything that Solomon had worked so hard to build to be lost. Every, all of his life's work. Do you see why he says it's vanity? It only took one generation to lose it all. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the parable uh, of the rich fool, is what it's called. Let me read it to you. It says, He told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's foolish to live our lives amassing wealth and achievements because we cannot take them with us. They mean nothing in the end. The other reason Solomon gives uh, for work and achievements being vanity is that you can never do enough. In verses 22 and 23, he says, What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I think many workaholics genuinely aren't in it for the money, but they're driven to excel. This is an epidemic in America. Some of you in this room are so driven to achieve at work that you will put your career before God, before spending time with Him. You'll put your career before your family. You'll put your career before anything that gets in the way of your career. What drives this? And Solomon tells us in chapter 4, if we flip over a couple of chapters in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, he says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity in a striving after the wind. 
uh, one of the uh, commentators on the book of Ecclesiastes, Jonathan Aiken, he said, Envy, the desire to outdo your neighbor, and the longing for recognition are the driving forces for so much reckless working. Um, I'm not a Patriots fan, uh, and I'm not, I don't really care for Tom Brady, uh, and they got knocked out of the playoffs last week, uh, so I didn't feel too bad for him. Uh, but uh, there was a fascinating interview that Tom Brady uh, did. It was actually an Instagram post that Tom Brady put out. And uh, in his post, uh, Tom Brady, for those of you who don't know, by the way, he's a 43-year-old quarterback for the New England Patriots, arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. And uh, he was. people kept asking him, are you going to retire? Are you going to retire? Because he's 43, and usually that's what people do when they're 43. They stop playing games where they get you know, destroyed by other human beings uh, because their bodies get tired. And here's what he said. He said, quote, he said, no, I know that I still have a lot left to prove. That was fascinating when I heard that. I mean, here's the, probably the most accomplished quarterback to ever play the game. And he's sitting there saying, I have a lot left to prove. And I found myself asking, what does he have left to prove? And to whom? That he can still play at 44? Well, is he going to need to prove something at 45? What about 55? I mean, at some point, he's not going to be able to prove it anymore. At some point, his body's going to stop cooperating with him, and he's going to have to stop. Then what? What is he going to be able to prove? The end of his career is knocking on the door, and it's, and it's very close. The preacher says that all the toil and the anxiety of striving to achieve results in vexation. Here's what I want you to seriously ask yourself this morning. What are you trying to prove? What will you have gained from all the toil and the striving of heart? All the stress, all the anxiety, all the long hours, all the pushing yourself at the end of the day, what will it mean? The honest answer, if we ask ourselves, is, are we ever going to finish? Is it ever going to be enough? And the honest answer is that no, it won't ever be enough. There's always going to be one more year left to prove something. Because deep down, we know just how fleeting and temporary all of it is. So what do we do? What do we do? Because the preacher has said in verse 11 and 17 and verse 22 and 23 that self-indulgence, wise living, and work are vanity. So does that mean that the answer is to give up all of our possessions and go be monks and live in a hermitage? We should just deny all material goods and reject them as evil? No, that's not what the preacher means. Listen to his conclusion, verses 24 to 26 again. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is a somewhat surprising conclusion. He says that food and drink and toil are all vanity, but his conclusion is that we should enjoy them. So what does he mean? The key is there in verse 25. 
where he says that apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? What he's teaching us is that God's gifts are meant to direct us to God, not to replace God. His gifts are meant to direct us to him, not to replace him. The reason life feels like vanity is because we have made God's good gifts into little idols. And we're looking to to them to do what they cannot do. This is the essence of sin. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, in the beginning, God designed creation so that as we enjoyed His good gifts, they would point us back to Him. They would only increase our enjoyment of Him. But instead, we chose the creation over the Creator. We chose to worship what God had created rather than the one who made them. And God's judgment against us for that was He let us have what we wanted. He said, okay, you want to worship my stuff instead of me? All right, have at it. And what we are discovering now is that it's vanity to do that. To to have little God replacements is vanity. And what the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is that all of God's gifts without God are meaningless. They'll never satisfy us. The only way to truly enjoy God's gifts is when we come to treasure the giver more than the gifts. That's, that's the main point of this sermon in a nutshell. The only way to truly enjoy God's gifts is when we come to treasure the giver more than the gifts. So how do you do that? What needs to happen for you to be content to treasure the giver more than the gifts? Well, first, you need to repent of prideful idolatry. You have to see your sin for what it is. It's treasonous idolatry and it's an offense against the holy God. That's what we're doing when we choose to seek and to worship and to find pleasure in and contentment in things other than God. We're replacing Him with lesser things. And this dishonors God. Jesus is supremely valuable and worthy of our worship. First and foremost, because He created us. Psalm 33, 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. When we salivate over what God has made like it's a filet mignon and then we treat God like the parsley on top, we're dishonoring Him. What have you been looking to as a God replacement in your life? All you need to do to figure that out is, is, is examine, where are my, where's my time going? Where are my thoughts directed? Where's my money going? That'll, that's a good way to indicate what you're worshiping. Are they being lifted up to God or to a substitute? It's our, it's our sinful dishonoring of God that has brought about death and vanity. And we need to repent of looking to God's substitutes if we want to find contentment. But then we also need to see Jesus as our treasure. 
what's amazing is that even though we dishonor God in this way, God does not strike us down in our place. He extends grace to sinners. And honestly, that's an understatement. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus actually took on flesh so that he could come and dwell amongst us and die on the cross for our sins in our place as our substitute. That's why Jesus came. That's the whole point of the Easter story, is that Jesus came to, for one reason, that's to die on the cross in the place of sinners. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming the grave. So his resurrection means that we have a future hope. That means that this cloud of death that makes everything under the sun seem meaningless, actually, Jesus has lifted that cloud of death by overcoming it. So in Christ, everything is not meaningless. In Jesus, he can restore and renew everything that death has stolen. And if you've placed your faith in him, believing that he died for you and that he rose for you, you can have that forgiveness of sins and that eternal life. If you, maybe you're here this morning and you have not done that before. Maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus my question for you would be, what are you waiting for? You can do that today. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. What's the point of that parable? The point of that parable is that the man discovered something in the field, and that something is Jesus that was worth far more than everything else that he had. And it says that in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had to buy that field. He didn't begrudgingly go, oh, okay, I mean, I really want to go to heaven. I don't want to have to leave behind all of my fun things in life, but I guess if that's the thing I've got to do to be a religious person and go to heaven one day, then I'll live a boring life for the rest of my life. No, that's not what he says. He says in his joy he sold all that he owned so that he could go and buy that field because he realized and saw that Jesus is better, that, that all other things in his life were God's substitutes that they can't fill him in, in the way that only Jesus can. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3. He said, whatever gain I had, I count as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. What that man who found the treasure hidden in the field when he, he sold everything that he owned to buy that treasure, that's what it looks like to be saved. Have you done that before? I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer one time and been baptized? I'm asking, do you see Jesus as your treasure? Do you prize him and value him above everything else in your life? Does he have that place in your heart? If you've never done that before, I would encourage you to do that today. And maybe you'd say, well, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen Jesus like that, but I want to, then you can call upon him today. You can call upon him right where you are in your seat. And you can say, Jesus, I don't want to keep going to God's substitutes. I want you. I believe that you're better. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. Please help me to see you and to treasure you more than all of these other substitutes in my life that I've been filling my life with. I'm turning away from those and I'm trusting in you. You can do that today. And I urge you to if you haven't. If you have done that, if you have trusted in Jesus, then my question for you this morning is, what are you still looking for? 
if you are a dissatisfied Christian, the problem is not with Jesus. It's not because Jesus isn't enough and you need to go find something to add on top of Jesus in your life. The reason is that you're drawing from wells with no water. If there's something besides Jesus that you feel like you need to be content, then that something has become an idol in your life. And so uh, the answer is not to beat yourself up, to not walk out of here in condemnation and shame, but it's to acknowledge that. It's to recognize that it's for that purpose that Jesus died on the cross for our sins because we are sinners. And so, it's, and so the answer is turn from that thing this morning, confess that to God and say, Jesus, I'm going to turn back to you. Please forgive me for beginning to put these other things in my life before you. Maybe it's your desire for marriage. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex. Whatever it is that you've been looking to to try to fill the void in your life, I urge you to return to Jesus this morning. If you've been wandering away, Jesus is calling you back today. And praise God that we have a good shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one. He's coming after you this morning if you've been wandering away. Now, I don't want you guys to walk away this morning thinking it's bad to enjoy material things because not, that's not what this passage teaches. What Ecclesiastes 2 teaches is that to truly enjoy God's gifts, things like our family, marriage, food, entertainment, to truly enjoy things like that, we need to treasure the giver more than the gifts. So what he's not teaching that we shouldn't enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. But how do we enjoy God's gifts under the sun without making them ultimate? Like how do we keep from making them ultimate and from letting them become substitutes? That's what I want to finish with. I just want to give you two ways. Two ways that we can enjoy God's gifts under the sun without making them ultimate. The first is to remember that they are given by grace. God's gifts under the sun are given by grace. Entitlement is the enemy of contentment. As soon as you begin to think, God owes this to me, you are on your way to anxiety and dissatisfaction. Every good gift that God gives is given to us by grace. We don't deserve anything that we have. And because God gives it, and listen carefully here, because God gives it freely, He has the right to take it away. A lot of times we act like he doesn't have the right to take it away. When something gets taken out of our life, what do we do? We get angry at God, right? We begin to shake our fist at God. Friends, we need to remember that everything that we have is a gift of grace from God. He gives freely and he has the right to take it away. But listen to me, God does not take things away out of maliciousness. He doesn't take things away from us to hurt us. He's a good father who loves us and he knows what is best for us. He's our heavenly father, okay? And we can trust Him and we can know that He's good even when we can't understand what He's doing. Recognizing that all of His gifts are given by grace keeps us from bitterness and anger. So when you pray for something for a long time and, and you don't get it or you're not receiving it in the timing, it, recognizing that everything you have is from grace will keep you from bitterness. When you lose something or someone that's precious to you, it'll keep you from anger. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, he said, I have learned in any situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
I mean, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life after he came to know Jesus, it was not an easy one. He suffered tremendously at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. He was persecuted. He suffered great loss. He was uncomfortable. He often didn't have places to stay. He was cold. He was shipwrecked. He was whipped with the tail of 39 lashes. Or he was whipped 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails. Because Paul could not lose his greatest treasure, which is Jesus, he was able to remain joyful in the midst of all of that. He trusted God to give and take away lesser graces in his own wisdom. There was never a doubt in Paul's mind as to God's faithfulness, and there shouldn't be in ours either. God is good. He demonstrated his love for us on the cross. We don't have to doubt it. And the second way we enjoy God's gifts under the sun without making them ultimate is we need to allow them to point you back to the giver. Allow them to point you back to the giver. The preacher asked in verse 25, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Whenever we enjoy any good thing, we should remember that the thing is not good in and of itself. It's good because it points us to God. It's good because it points us to God. God has given us all good gifts under the sun to teach us about who He is. Uh, I was talking about this with my, my wife earlier this week when I was preparing, and uh, she, she said something, and I wrote it down. So this is, this is a gin quote. She said, We understand what it means to hunger for God because we understand what it means to hunger for food. Now think about all the little things in life, whether it's food or whether it's marriage. Why does God give us the gift of marriage? It's to point us, to help us understand what the kind of covenant relationship He's made with us, with, the, with His bride, the church. Why does God give us children and why does He give us parents? It's to teach us how He, as our Heavenly Father, relates to us and loves us so that we can understand. If you're a father and you have a child, you understand the, the unconditional love you have for your son. And, and that's just a, a little glimmer, just a little peek into the incredible unconditional love that your Heavenly Father has for you. That's why God gives us all these good gifts. It's to point us back to Him. It's not so that we can take these little gifts and go mine and hoard it and go and then start looking to those things to satisfy us apart from God, but it's, it's to receive these gifts from God and say, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful gift. Enjoy it, but let it point us back to Him in worship. Amen? Does that, does that make sense? A couple of practical ways to do this before we close. Um, first of all, I mean, this, this is not overly complicated, but give thanks in prayer. Like when you're praying, remember to give God thanks. Uh, I, I recently, God kind of uh, convicted me the other day because I, re- I realized I have really gotten out of the, the habit of thanking God in prayer before I eat food. And I'll just go straight to eating my food. And I, and I realized that I have not really been, you know, recognizing that even the food on my table comes from God. And I've just been taking that for granted. So I'm trying to make a concerted effort now to thank, pray and thank God before I eat. It's not something we do out of routine because that's what good Christians do, but we're acknowledging that it came from His hand and He gives it to us, yes, because He wants us to enjoy the good flavors, but He also wants it to point us back to Him in worship. So give thanks to God for your family, for your job, for your car, for all the good things that He's given you. This brings glory to God and it helps you remember how good He's been to you. 
another practical way to keep um, God's good gifts from uh, becoming idols and substitutes, a way to enjoy them is uh, to practice fasting from time to time. Uh, when we fast from food, we're purposely saying, I need Jesus more than food. Jesus, you are more valuable to me than food. We're not doing it to curry favor with God. We're not doing it because that's one of the things that you need to do to get to heaven. No, no. We're doing it because we, we love Jesus. We long for him. We want him more than food. And we're expressing that to him by choosing uh, to forego a meal and spend that time that we would spend eating instead seeking him. Because we believe, Jesus, you are the bread of life. And if I come to you, I'll never hunger and I'll never thirst. The way to contentment is not to suppress the desire for God's gifts, but to put those desires in their rightful place. And so many people think Christianity is about a list of rules, a list of don'ts telling us all that we can't do, and a list of do's telling us all that we must do. Jonathan Aiken, I, I mentioned him earlier uh, in his commentary, uh, he points out <clears throat> that the preacher's life resembles that of the prodigal son. I never thought about that. Um, in the story of the prodigal son, when you think about it, he, uh, what happens is the prodigal rejects his father and he goes and he squanders his entire inheritance on partying and, and lavish living, right? And he, he says, he basically says, dad, forget you. I don't really want you. I just want my half of the inheritance so I can get out of here and go have fun. And I want to, I want to go do something else with my life. And so he takes, he takes this and he goes and he has a big, great big party. But then what happens is the money runs out and he finds himself in a foreign country with nowhere to go, no, no one to turn to. He's eating pig slop in a farm and he finally comes to his senses and realizes, well, I'd be better off just being a servant back uh, with my father than sitting here eating this pig slop. So maybe, maybe my dad, I know he'll never take me back as, as his son, but maybe he'll take me back as a servant. He'll just let me be a slave on his uh, on his property, and so he comes back. And and if you've never, if if you know the story, you know what happens next. He starts coming down the road, and as soon as the father sees him, he goes sprinting down the road towards his son, and he goes and he embraces him, and he's weeping around his neck, and he calls the servants, and they uh, bring a, a robe, and they put a ring on his finger, and they have this big feast, and they they slaughter the fattened calf, and there's this great big party. And what Jonathan Aiken pointed out is that um, the beginning of the story of the prodigal son, it starts out with a party, but it also ends with a party. It ends with a party. And what, what Aiken points out is that the difference is that the son couldn't enjoy the party until he was satisfied with the father's love. You see, it's not bad to enjoy our Father's good gifts. But it's when we make those good gifts ultimate, when we reject the Father and say, I want to look to your gifts in place of you, that's vanity. That's vanity, church. So I want to invite you to come back to the Father this morning if you've been straying away. Or come to Him for the first time. Maybe, maybe you'd say, like, I've been a prodigal son my whole life. I've been wandering around. I've never really seen Jesus as my treasure. I want to invite you to do that this morning in a moment as we sing. We're going to have a time of, of response. Um, 
What I want, what I want to do is I'm just going to ask Carrie to, to start playing, and we're going to spend some time in prayer so that I can give you the opportunity to respond to God in the way that, that He may be calling you to respond. Um, so uh, spend some time there in your seat praying, and, uh, and then in a few moments, uh, after you've had some time to pray and do business with God, uh, we're going to stand and we're going to sing another song of praise and worship. Spend some time, spend some time in your seat thanking God for the good gifts that He's given you. Spend some time thanking Him. God, I thank you for blessing me with blank. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your your health. Spend some time thanking God, worshiping Him. God, you are truly good. Lord, I, I thank you so much for your grace. Lord, I was thinking about the, the hymn that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God, I am so thankful for your steadfast love towards me, towards all of us in this room, even though we're so prone to wonder, to chase after lesser things in place of you. But you are faithful, God, even when we're faithless. God, I pray that that this morning you would be exalted in our hearts, that you would be enthroned upon the praises of your people. As we lift up our voices to you in song right now, that, that we wouldn't just sing a song, but that we would pray these words out to you, that as we, as we shout these praises, God, that we would mean it. We would mean what we're saying. When we say things like, I surrender all, pray that we truly would. When we say things like, God, you're so good. You're so good to me that, that our heart posture would truly be one of gratitude and thankfulness. God, you are so worthy of 
all of our praise. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.